Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So at the very least, as citizens, um, voting, informing yourself to be an informed citizen when you walk into that, to cast that ballot, and raising good citizens. Raising children to be good citizens. Let's go. Welcome to Citizen. We've got a special guest today, Mr. Jack Carr, former Navy SEAL, author, executive producer, actor, so on, right? You got a lot of stuff going on now. A lot of stuff going on. Yeah, <laughs> the actor thing, you know, I didn't have to do too much. Didn't have to, uh, it wasn't a big stretch uh, uh, to play a former <laughs> operator uh, slash assassin contractor type guy and getting a out with Chris Pratt. But I did have to tell him that if this was real life, it would have gone down little bit differently uh just, to make sure keep him, uh, just gotta keep him humble yeah you can't let chris get one up on you like that um for sure no 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 <laughs> um, it was pretty cool to see it they, they mentioned it. it was cool to see how they do that in hollywood how they put bullet holes in glass oh yeah and uh, what they do is they little like metal straws that are like mortar tubes mm-hmm. and they're just below the dash in a car and so they're just lined up right there and then you're behind the wheel and chris is shooting in but the what makes it look like there's bullet holes in the glass is the guy on the side and he's putting pushing these buttons and a little charge is going off in the bottom of these metal straws, sending a small ball bearing up into the glass. Hmm. So I have sunglasses on so that the glass doesn't go into my into my eyes, but it looks like there's little bullet hole bullets coming through the glass. So it's kind of cool to have those things going off and getting the shootout and and do the thing. You know, one of these days you're gonna have to do uh, maybe on Danger Closer, maybe just do it as like a mini doc and explain how all the Hollywood magic happened because people are super interested in that stuff. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, of course, there's a lot of, I mean, there's not a lot of green screen stuff in, in Terminal mm-hmm. S, but like background. And now I notice it in movies. Like, you're like, how did they do that? How did they make the, yeah, the mountains yeah. in the background? that you know from the 1800s aren't there houses there and you know the digital effects is amazing but but still the stuntmen i mean they wouldn't let me do the stunt they had car crash and i thought i can you know get a little car crash no big deal and then i saw it and i was like oh i'm kind of glad i didn't do that at this stage with the little little neck had some neck surgery spine surgery a few years ago and and uh glad they didn't let me do it because it actually looked in person a lot harder than it looks on screen but the guy who doubled me was mick rogers who's a famous hollywood stuntman and he has he doubled mel gibson mm-hmm. in lethal weapon jumping off that building handcuffed oh, yeah. to mel gibson yeah, yeah. so it was really cool to him get to talk to him about that because obviously lethal weapon is a very formative film for those of us sure, who grew yeah. up in the 80s yeah um but yeah the hollywood magic stuff is it's pretty fun well you're so i mean that must be quite the treat for you because you're kind of an, a nerd in those regards like you geek out on that stuff and now you've got inside access to it does it, uh, I'm sure sometimes you just got to sit on your hands and keep your mouth shut because we got work to do. But when you got a little free time, it's like, hey, tell me, tell me some stuff because I really want to know. 
There's some, yeah, it, it, and you hear the old Hollywood stories too. So you hear from guys on the set that have worked on films in the eighties, nineties, early two thousands and the differences in the evolution uh, of the industry. And it's, uh, it's really cool to hear, hear those stories as well, or interactions with, with stars that, that we all know on different sets and you get kind of insight into that and then the business side of it. So there's a, there's a lot to it, but what it has done is also made me realize just how many places a film can totally go off the rails yeah. and makes me appreciate films that actually get made it makes me a lot more understanding and i was always understanding before trying to enjoy you know movies for for what they are rather than trying to pick out all the little things that are wrong but now i just see how many people are involved like a book like this like that's one person if it's something's wrong that's all on me but over there in hollywood there are 350 people on set yeah. there are multiple writers in a writer's room there then there's editing where someone can take a shot that just looks better because of the lighting but has no idea that let's say the, the scope covers on mm. or that the actor's finger on the trigger when he's pointing at his buddy's head or mm. something like that so there's just so many opportunities for these things to completely go off the rails so i'm much more <laughs> understanding now having been a part of it yeah i mean uh it, that it, it, there's so much that goes into that stuff, and there are so many people that are involved that have no idea, you know, about some of the particulars. So, um, one of the things about that that people we get this feedback a lot whenever we have you on, uh, and I share this sentiment is that just the attention to detail in your writing is, is something that really draws me to your books. Like uh, 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 Hurwitz books are like that too. Like the super super attention to detail. I'm a big fan of that stuff. So it's it's nice to see it come across on screen because you know it i would say even today the shows and tv and, and, and films that get it right are probably in the minority like get it like really right you know what i mean like seal team does a pretty good job but half the fucking crew over there are seals or, or tier one operators right so that that's that's always a nice benefit um but on yeah, a big movie project like that you can't always you know have that many actual gunfighters on 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 the job so uh but let's get back to i want to i want to start a little bit earlier here um <clears throat> it's kind of a trope these days with the GWAT that somebody joined the military because of 9-11 um you were in before that uh but but your story is a little bit different because a lot of my buddies that join especially the navy and especially the seals um uh, it had something to do with some of the operations they may have seen or heard about in the news or uh charlie sheen obviously was a great recruiter for the Navy. Um, but for you, it's like your, your entire family served in the military. So you were kind of, you were thinking about this from a very young age. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, very early. I think it was just in my blood. I think even if my grandfather hadn't served in World War II, even if I hadn't had his medals, hadn't had the silk maps that they gave aviators back then, because if you had a paper one and hit the water, it would disintegrate, but a silk mm. map would just get wet You'd still use it. So I had all those. I still have all those. I have his wings. He was a Marine Corps fighter pilot, uh, flew the Corsair. And there was a show on TV called Black Sheep Squadron back then, yeah. for those who remember, with uh, Robert Conrad playing Pappy Boynton. So really before the... In the age of social media, uh, that was m my connection and my dad's uh, connection to that generation because you couldn't just look on Facebook and try to find someone who knew your dad. Uh, my grandfather was killed in World War II, so my dad never had any uh, connection 
to him other than through the medium of popular culture, in particular, that show. Um, once again, there wasn't a Facebook group where you could go and find that squadron and say, you know, track somebody down when you were age 9, 10, 11, 12 and say, hey, tell me about my dad. Uh, that just didn't didn't exist unless someone wrote a letter to you specifically, um, which is one of the reasons that uh, in 2000, when my best friends burned in uh, parachuting. And um, so I wrote a letter to his son, who was just one years old at the time. So about the same age my dad was when, when his father died. So I wanted him to, to have a letter written by me in 2000 uh, with memories mm -hmm. that were uh, current. Yeah, and uh, so, I, so I did that because of because my dad didn't have those those types of letters. So um, so even without all that, I think I would have it was just in my blood to to serve and to want to test myself. And um, I think it's just a, a part of you. And it's been a part of most people from the beginning of time. You had to be a good fighter. You had to be a good hunter or else you weren't long for this earth and neither was your tribe. Mm. Um, so I think it was just in my blood. But I found out about SEALs through a movie called, once again, popular culture, through a movie called The Frogman. Mm. And uh, for those who grew up in the 70s and 80s, you'll remember that uh, before remote controls, us kids were the remote controls. And so there was three channels and one outlier. There was ABC, CBS, NBC, and then this one outlier channel that on Sundays was always playing a war movie. So as my dad was watching football, commercial would come up, he'd look at his watch, and I'd run up to the TV and turn it to that outlier channel to watch a war movie for two minutes. And then he'd look at his, you know, keep looking at his watch and tell me to turn it back to football and we'd watch football till the next commercial. But one of those was the frogman and so i asked my dad hey who are these guys i see these guys in old black and white film they're coming up out of the water they're uh placing explosives on obstacles on beaches and i asked my dad who they were and he said those are those are frogmen and i said well what's that Started pestering him and he said ask your mother so i went to my mom and she was a librarian still is and went down to the local library and started doing some research and this is early 80s so there's not much written about special operations back then uh very very little written about seals mm -hmm. but what i found out from that trip was that the training was uh touted anyway as some of the toughest ever devised by a modern military and that they were some of the most elite special operators in the world so uh from age seven on i was uh, i was on that path so that was uh about a decade before charlie sheen uh started his recruitment efforts <laughs> and uh ever since then the more books started coming out whether it was by sf guys from Vietnam or SEALs mm. from Vietnam uh, they slowly started coming out in the later 80s then early 90s the late 90s so I was just always a, a student of warfare um, mm. uh, we had a set of encyclopedia Britannicas uh, in the in the house and I would always go to those and I'd be always looking up World War One World War Two Korean War Vietnam just always looking for anything I possibly could on warfare and specifically special operations so I was uh, I was on the path from a very early age uh, but then at the same time, once again, you get to the end of that library shelf and you've essentially found the end of the internet in 1983, 84, 85, 86. And, uh, so I started reading the books my parents were reading in about fifth grade. That's when I switched from young adult literature into the same kind of books my parents were reading. Hunt for Red October comes out then. And then I'm just from for sure sixth grade on, I'm on a steady diet of these amazing books by incredible authors. Uh, David Morrell, Tom Clancy, Nelson DeMille, AJ Quinnell, JC Pollock, Mark Olden, Louis L'Amour. And I just start going into all these books, loving the magic in those pages, but also because the protagonists back then, and even if you didn't read in the 80s, if you watch movies and TV shows, uh, the protagonists were very similar in that they were all 
Navy SEALs in Vietnam, mm. Special Army Special Forces, Vietnam, Marine Corps Sniper, Vietnam, CIA Paramilitary, Vietnam. And now in the 80s, they're a private investigator. They're a, they're a stuntman. They're a police officer, whatever they might be. But they had that background that would allow them to do the things in the pages of books or on TV or in movies mm. that uh, that gave them some, some credibility. So I love the magic in those pages and knew that after my time in the military that I would write thrillers. Yeah, I mean, you that's that's uh, something I wanted to, to ask you about. It's like like your love of writing and and commitment to the country and military experience began way before you started writing or before you were in the military. I think it's a, it's, it's the, a lot of people have come out of uh, service like that and and you know become good at something writing or whatever kind of entertainment. But it's I, I don't know that I don't know that I know of anybody else who was already committed to both right in the younger years and has kind of progressed through that. So. Um, do you think that having that mindset already, being a fan of, of reading and writing uh, already, do you think it made you pay closer attention to some of the details that you would later articulate onto the page? I don't know, because it was. I looked at them at the time as two distinct, separate mm. entities and phases of life. Um, I didn't think I would do one in order to make me better at the other. I sure. just came at the writing fan perspective from just reading um, and then the military side of the house, just studying warfare, wanting to be the best operator I could possibly be. That's why I thought that I owed the the guys, owed uh, my country, owed the mission, um, owed the families of those that I was taking downrange. So I've never stopped studying warfare. I'm a student, whether it's of warfare, uh, whether it's of uh, writing thrillers, whether it's uh, screenwriting, whatever I'm doing, I always approach it from the perspective uh, of a student. Mm. Um, I don't think that'll ever That'll ever change. It's, uh, it's um, you know, it's it's been it's been a lot of years now, uh, as as the white and the beard mm. will will tell you. Yeah. So I've always approached things like that, and that's just who that's just who I am. So uh, I don't think it maybe paid closer attention, but as I'm just I'm just always interested in the details. The details matter to me uh, when you're building a foundation on on anything. It mm. has to be a solid foundation. No much to build. So those details matter, not just in my, my writing, but in, in life in general. So, so I'd be better to say that the thing that made you good at the one made you good at the other as well, right? Um, that's That's probably safe to say. That's exactly that's exactly it. I didn't realize how personal like I always, I always knew that as I started to get out, let's say um, made the decision to get out after I got back from my last Iraq deployment. So let's say I uh, really made the decision, let's say 2012, 2011, so 2012, somewhere in there. Uh, so still had a couple of years left. But at this point, I'm not taking guys down range anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm the operations officer at BUDS, which is our SEAL training command. And that thing has been around in one way, shape or form essentially since World War Two. So uh, you are you have that's a that's a, a nice way of saying you have some time on your hands, mm-hmm. like it's push ups, it's sit ups, it's runs, it's swims and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. And the phase instructors each have an officer and a master chief. So they're, they're good. They're good to go. Uh, so started writing in, uh, let's see, probably December of 2014. I want to say I wrote the first words. And up until that point, I didn't realize, I thought I'd get the details right of sniper weapon systems and whatever else. And mm-hmm. if I didn't know something about a helicopter or an aircraft, I could, you know, I knew who to reach out to, to ask that sort of thing. But I didn't realize how personal it was going to be uh, until I started writing those first words and that first few those first few sentences it became very obvious that this was going to be a much more personal writing experience than i anticipated 
at the outset, meaning I'm going back to memories of Iraq and Afghanistan and remembering what it felt like to be ambushed in Baghdad in 2006, and then taking those feelings and emotions and applying them mm. to a completely fictional narrative. So yeah. if my character, James Reese, gets ambushed in Los Angeles, California as part of this made up story, um, well, I remember what it felt like to get ambushed in Baghdad and I can take those feelings and apply them to the story. So even though it's all made up, it's a fictional narrative, uh, the feelings and emotions are real. And I think that stood out to, mm -hmm. to Simon and Schuster when they read it, because they read thousands of th these things each year um, and to, to readers as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it definitely rings true. I mean, I think that's probably aside like you're you're a good writer the plot's great fucking everything's really good about it but i think the how true it rings is probably what made it as popular as it is amongst actual military veterans um back to your story though you got uh so you you enlisted originally in the navy right Yep. Yep. Part of that, uh, all that research I did growing up uh, pointed me towards the enlisted side of the house for sure. I wanted to be a sniper and I knew that uh, that officers aren't snipers typically. So uh, so I was on that path and I wanted to 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 learn the trade and uh, establish a reputation and then decide if I wanted to be an officer or not. So, yeah, I came in enlisted, definitely wanted to be a, a sniper, went to sniper school in 2000. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, it was good for me. It was the it was the right path. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's the right way for everybody to go, but uh, it was the right path for me. And what made you decide to become an officer? Was that something that the the teams approached you about or does that was that something that you wanted to do? Yeah, I was approached on that you know, fairly early on for whatever reasons. But um, yeah, man. I made that decision before September 11th. So let's say September 11th had happened in January of 2001. Um, I hadn't yet committed to go to OCS. And so I probably would have stayed enlisted at that point, just knowing that you're going to be getting after it on the enlisted side of the house at the tactical level for a lot longer than you will be as an officer. Um, but uh, I made the decision before September 11th. So it was already, already committed. And as it turned out, I got probably as fortunate as one could get as an officer, meaning I uh, went to three months of, of OCS where you do everything you do in boot camp, but you get yelled at by a Marine instead of somebody in the Navy. And uh, you're making your bed, you're folding t-shirts, all those things that make great leaders. And then right back to the SEAL teams. And as soon as I landed, I uh, hadn't been out of the teams for just a, a couple of months um, just to go to, to OCS and fold those t-shirts. Mm -hmm. And so they threw me right into the fight, right into Afghanistan, um, went down range with one of our um, top tier units and just to support and ended up just getting thrown essentially in the train, which was amazing. Um, so I got to learn a lot early on and take those lessons back to my SEAL team and then go to First Haiti when that kicked off, mm -hmm. um, so it was interesting to go down there with Army with uh, with SF Charlie Third of the Seventh down there. I got to be a liaison with them, which meant I just was essentially along for the ride. And, but it was cool to see the Army start with nothing, essentially just a uh, a, a hangar on an airfield, and how they came in and just built that thing up into a tactical operations center and a huge rock drill area and all the different elements that we're going to need to support units going into to Haiti. And that was like, when was that? When Aristide got deposed in 2004, early 2004. Um, and then came back from that and right into right into Iraq and right into the, the summer in Najaf and mm -hmm. leading a sniper team there and all that stuff. So that's a long way of saying I got very lucky mm -hmm. as an officer to be uh, to op continue operating at the tactical level for um, for a fairly sustained amount of time. So yeah. it was a it was a good run. Yeah, that's why I didn't. I mean, I enlisted for the same reason I, I had been to college, um, but, you know, just 
a cursory search showed me I, I, I was in the 82nd airborne so a cursory search showed me i might get some time to fight when i'm a platoon leader as an 01 and then after that it's unlikely that i'm in the fight again so it's like all right i'm not signing up to do fucking paperwork no offense to people who do it's it's necessary to we, we need leaders and stuff but uh, i wasn't really interested in doing any of that stuff um exactly yeah. it's painful I, you know it's good to know your your weaknesses and the the, uh, mm. the admin side of the house was definitely you know not not my strong suit yeah <laughs> yeah but i mean i say the least i was it uh was it mccarthy who said that wars are won by logistics i don't remember who it was that said that it may have been Patton yeah that said that. yeah um it, yeah it's yeah, definitely probably, but it's playing now. yeah the logistics train i get to see the the army logistics train is definitely something to see oh God, and man. a witness um whether it's strategic or it's more tactical meaning mm. when we went into a job summer 2004 and uh i think they gave probably about two weeks let everybody know hey get out of here if mm. you're not uh jay shamati militia and it ended up being like a two-week campaign 11 days of which we're engaged in pretty intense urban urban combat nonstop. but to see how the army came in there and supplied those troops mm. fighting uh like us, that water, that food, mm. that ammo, everything moving forward into those front lines and us pushing forward and bringing that food and that water and that ammo up to us. And just to keep pushing the Jay Shamadi militia toward the Imam Ali Mosque in Old Town Najaf, um, that, that army logistics train is no joke. Yeah, they've, uh, they've got that down. It's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, and it's, you know, better, I, I would say probably the best in the U.S. military. Um, now, you've all, you also were in. The Philippines. I don't. That's the one area of the GWAT that has no media about it. Nobody ever talks about it. There's been no books, really. I mean, there's been some books, but not any major books. There haven't been any kind of a film or television about it. But it's like the fucking. It's the Wild West down there. I mean, the the Philippine government had a weird kind of deal, I guess, uh, off the books deal with those guys that if they stayed on the southern islands and didn't fuck around on the mainland, they would, you know, turn a blind eye to it. But then things started to escalate. You were down there for some of the hot stuff. Yeah, it was interesting because uh, obviously I wanted to be in Afghanistan, wanted to be in Iraq, and I ended up going to the Philippines. So what do you got? You have to embrace it, and uh, so so I did, and started learning. And I got paired up with an Army warrant officer down there on one of the southern islands. Um, I won't say his name, but uh, I'll say his first name, Dave, because he's an awesome dude. Um, but I got to hear all about Army SF warrant officer school, and uh, that seems like an impressive program for those guys. Uh, but anyway, we we. He knew a lot about the area because he was coming from uh, first group and uh, I had been focused on Iraq and Afghanistan and thought I was going to Afghanistan up until essentially the last minute when things uh, things changed and we had a commitment that we had to fulfill down in uh, in the Philippines. So uh, it's just how it goes sometimes. Yeah. But uh, I started learning, started reading. Um, I went in there to advise a Philippine Marine general. Uh, so once again, I took on the uh, the role of being a student. And uh, he mentored me and he'd been fighting down there for his entire career. Mm. Um, there's been an insurgency in the Southern Island chain for, for they've been fighting it for 100 plus years now. Um, so I got to learn a lot. And it also uh, it wasn't as dynamic as Iraq and Afghanistan, meaning they would gear up for campaigns in a more traditional way, build up their their intel um, and then go full force onto one of these islands and uh, essentially eliminate as many uh, terrorists or insurgents or or criminal gangs even as uh, as they could. So it was a different kind of operating environment. And uh, we were there in support, really utilizing our technical intelligence is the best way to say it mm. and coupling that with their their human and then of course they would go in and do the work and we could support medically and with a few few other things but uh man it was, it was pretty wild down there seeing them go in and it's hard not to 
like go in with them. I, don't, I definitely don't want to give the impression that I was there in the jungle shoulder to shoulder with these Philippine Marines who are going in there and getting after it. Uh, that is not the case at all. We were back at these fobs um, that are located throughout the throughout the jungles there. But uh, to see them go in, do that, and then see these guys coming out just you know, just bodies lined up of them just getting getting whacked, getting ambushed and still being in the fight and us supporting the best way we could and then carrying those guys to helos and uh, getting them out for the ones that were wounded for medical. Uh, it, man, it was it was pretty wild down mm. there. And you're right. Not much has been, been written about it. Um, and uh, and I haven't stayed as up to date on it. Maybe I'll do a book down there at some point that talks a little more about it and allows me to get more up to date with what's, ha what's happened since I was there in 2009. But uh, but yeah, it's been a dynamic environment for hundred plus years. So, uh, as we both know, it's, uh, when you go after a, an insurgency, um, it's, uh, it's, you can, you can degrade it, dismantle it, but, uh, it's, it's, uh, more difficult to completely destroy it. So they've yeah. been dealing with that for a while. Yeah. And I, I think they, I, I assume they still are. I mean, I think our major campaign ended in 2017, but I, I highly doubt that, you know, Al Qaeda, ISIS, whomever it is left Abu Sayyaf is who technically it is, but I mean, you, the, it's Wahhabists. I doubt they've left the area, right? There's no way. So I'm sure there's something going on down there. This episode is brought to you by ghostbed.com forward slash drink it bros. Ghostbed. It's the best bed in the world. It's the most comfortable sheets, pillows, the whole thing. I've got them all, man. And, you know, they wanted to extend their best possible offer to drink it bros. They've been with us for a very long time. So. This is the email they sent us. We want Drink It Bros to get the best offer, so I updated the code for 50% site-wide. That's 50% site-wide. Use the code Drinkin' Bros. Drinkin' Bros with no G. For 50% off site-wide, everything that you buy on this site is going to be 50% off. Again, they get the best pillows, sheets, mattresses. They get the mattress protector. Uh, if, you're, if you're sloppy and spill things and you don't want to jack up your mattress they have pretty much everything you need they've got weighted blankets now they've got the adjustable base which we really like i've got one in my home so go to ghostbed.com forward slash drink it bros use the code drink it bros for 50 percent off site-wide and don't forget about their pay-as-you-go plan if you're with approved credit you're going to be able to pay this thing off over the course of three to five years for 25 to 35 bucks a month it's nothing go to ghostbed.com forward slash drink it bros today and use the code Drink It Bros for 50% off. This episode is also brought to you by BlackRifleCoffee.com. The best coffee in the world. As a matter of fact, they won both the gold and bronze medal at the Golden Bean Awards this year for their exclusive coffee club entries in the elite category. So the best coffee on earth literally was Circus Bear by Black Rifle, one of their ECS. So I recommend that you go sign up for the Black Rifle Coffee Club. Use the code CITIZEN. You're going to get those points off. And, uh, you know, you get all the benefits from being in the coffee club. You get the free shipping. You get access to all the partner deals. Uh, uh, you get access to the exclusive coffee club. You get access to any new products that come out before anybody else does. You know, it's a very large club that they have over there. And the coffees are premium. Every single one of them is good. Uh, you, you're going to get experience for you you can do just the plain coffee club and if you want your two bags of, of uh, espresso or your two bags of silencer smooth or whatever it is you drink you can get those two bags or one bag or whatever you want every month or and or rather you can use the ecs the exclusive coffee club and get access to some of the most premium coffees on the planet and kind of learn what it is that you like 
You know what I mean? So then you can order those premium coffees from Black Rifle as well. So, and we all know they got the best branding, the best merch, and they're buddies. You know, we're all friends here. Uh, we love Black Rifle. So go to blackriflecoffee.com, sign up for the coffee club, or buy something, do whatever you want. Um, use the code CITIZEN, you're going to get those points off. This episode is brought to you by firstform.com forward slash citizen. Free shipping on all orders over $75 when you use the link. And you're not going to spend less than 75 bucks. I mean, they get the best products in the world, especially the OptiGreens. You know me, I don't eat vegetables um, because they're fucking pointless. So I supplement with OptiGreens 50 from First Form. It is precisely formulated green superfood powder meant for overall immune system support and digestive health. It's really good, aside from just getting the daily greens into your body that you need, and make sure, by the way, you're taking this with MCT because you have to take anything like this with MCT. 80% of your immune system is located in your gut and your digestive tract, right? So healthy digestion is essential for overall health and wellness, not to mention that most of your serotonin, I think 96% of your serotonin or 94% is made in your gut as well. So you're gonna be in a better mood. You're gonna feel better physically, and you're going to feel better mentally if you are taking these greens. OptiGreen 50 has 50 chosen ingredients, uh, effectively dosed. It's not necessarily how many ingredients there are, though, but it's, a, it's about the right amount of each. Taste and texture not like no other product in the market. It's not gritty. It doesn't have a weird flavor. It's got sweet berry flavors, actually. 100% uh, of the greens are all grown and manufactured inside the United States, and they are bioavailable. Now, they've got other products as well. They've got the Microfactor which you see behind me on every show, uh, and I take them every day. You know, you got essential fatty acids, CoQ10, you got all the stuff you need in one little packet for your daily vitamin pack. And you mix that, you, you make yourself uh, uh, OptiGreens 50 shake, and you, and you take those pills with it, and you're gonna improve your life precipitously. You're gonna feel better, you're gonna look better, so on and so forth. So go to firstform.com, that's one S-T-P-H-O-R-M, dot com forward slash citizen use the code you're gonna get free shipping on all orders over 50 bucks um yeah actually when we were there on a different island um i think it was on holo i might be wrong about that on a different island an sf guy we got killed on a with id mm. uh down there early you, know, you don't hear about yeah. that sort of thing yeah it's kind of the forgotten part of the gwat i've always been interested in it because i've had plenty of buddies from first group and from ground branch who have been down there operating and shit and they've got i mean it's wild stories that seem like they would be pretty fun for tv and film you know what i mean it just never yeah. kind of materialized <laughs> um, yeah you're maybe, kind of off the radar you know yeah. you're even though there is a flagpole there is a uh kind of like a headquarters mm. area uh if you're even there um i mean you take a step outside you don't feel like you're close to the flagpole. Um, you have a little more freedom, I think, of maneuver down there, uh, particularly if you have a good relationship with your Filipino counterpart, which I did. So it's uh, it's an interesting part of the world, uh, that's for sure. And when the light's not on you, you can do a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's always nice not to have uh, cameras following you around when you're trying to do shit. Um, so let's talk about level leader uh, over your shoulder and directives coming down because something yeah. happened at the chow hall, you yeah. know, in Baghdad, whatever <laughs> it is like there, I just, there just wasn't that. And, yeah. uh, and also at the time, uh, comms were sketchy. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, for whatever reason, it was very nice to have comms go down on these islands, uh, from time to time. It gives you a little breathing room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is nice. Uh, certainly. Um, yeah, it, and, and I want to talk some about, um, the show here uh so citizen is 
the the reason I named it that is because the premise of the show is that you can bitch and moan about your rights and how things are going in the world, um, and and you know you can wait around for somebody else to secure those rights for you, and you will be a subject under their rule. Um, as Plato said, and, and you know if you refuse to take part in your own governance, you're doomed to be ruled by fools, right? Or you can, uh, you know, secure your rights yourself by performing the responsibilities required of you. And that's the literal definition of a citizen in Merriam-Webster. It's the, somebody who had, with the rights mm-hmm. and responsibilities uh, given to them for being a citizen. And, you know, it's all about personal responsibility and not, not just for its own sake, not, not to moralize personal responsibility or anything like that, but because it's fucking effective. You know what I mean? Um, I, I use this quote a lot, but G.K. Chesterton used to say that um, men didn't love Rome because she was great. Rome was great because the men loved her. And that's the responsibility of every American. If you're going to wear that fucking flag on your shoulder and talk about how patriotic you are, you better goddamn be ready to contribute, right? And pull your weight. Otherwise you're full of shit, right? It's just, that, that seems like really basic to me. Like we should all kind of be on that same page. Um, you know, and it's like anytime, anytime you let, some external entity, whether it's government or something else, interfere in the day-to-day activities in your community, there's a price to pay for that. You might be getting something from them, but they're getting some from you too, right? It, it never comes for free. And I think we should be deeply suspicious of anybody who shows up with, uh, you know, with gifts, right? Uh, it's, it's almost always a Trojan. Where are those bearing gifts? Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, there's absolutely, I mean, the very least, people need to inform themselves and vote and realize that tweets headlines are there to manipulate to manipulate behaviors and thoughts and they're all the more powerful in this age of social media and getting powerful more powerful each and every day uh so at the very least as citizens um voting informing yourself to be an informed citizen when you walk into that to cast that ballot and raising good citizens raising children to be good citizens. Um, I think those three things uh, are probably top of list off the top of my head as things that anyone can and should do as a responsible citizen of this nation. Um, otherwise, you're throwing you're, you have this gift and you're throwing it away for future generations. It's not really about us at this point. It's about our kids mm-hmm. and our grandkids. It's about those future generations, the decisions we make today, the about the the, uh, the vote that we cast today is about our kids and our grandkids. It's not really mm-hmm. about us at all. Uh, and people from the inception of this country up until today have sacrificed everything to give us these rights to secure these rights for us so it's our responsibility as citizens then to do the same for the next generation uh and it seems like that is getting more and more difficult as the government continues to encroach upon these rights uh we continue to to give up rights almost without a second thought in some cases um and to have our thoughts and behaviors manipulated uh by entities that benefit from us being divided and from that manipulation, meaning social media companies and what else? Well, politicians, those two entities definitely benefit from our division. Uh, One to consolidate bases and the other to get more data and become more profitable and therefore more powerful and therefore can uh, unleash even more lobbyists upon Washington, DC. But something when we talk about citizens, something that I, that really, pandemic highlighted was how important local level politics mm-hmm. are. We're focused on national 
level politics a lot of the time because that's what's on cable news. Um, that's what the headlines really focus on. But I think when we look at these school boards and we look at local level politics, COVID, if it did anything, it highlighted the importance of getting involved at the local level. The hard part about that is that a lot of those um, that are out there working and building businesses are doing just that. They're doing that, they're all in on building businesses and then next probably comes family and school board stuff and local level politics falls somewhere down the chain. And uh, I think a lot of us are, are guilty of that, me included. Um, but if we recognize it and then we can take steps um, to combat that. But, you know, you, what you said, the point of your show mm. um, uh, in in the preface here to my first book is how I, I finished it, finished this preface up. And it's kind of what I do before the book kicks off. And I do it with all of the books that kind of sets the tone for what people are about to read. But my last sentence in this, all right, the fundamental value of freedom is what sets us apart from the rest of the world. We are citizens, not subjects, and we must stay ever vigilant that we remain so. Mm. I wrote that on August 6, 2017, uh, in there. And uh, what's actually been really interesting about this publishing journey, and I didn't know how it was going to be at the outset, is that there's been zero pressure from Simon & Schuster in New York to change anything in my novels. There's never been even a hint of, hey, do you mind lightening up on the, on the freedom stuff or mm. on the gun stuff? Like, zero. I have 100% complete creative control and freedom with the novels. And I didn't know if there was that was going to be an issue going into to publishing because I had no background in it at all. Um, but to have complete creative control over something and have no outside entities that are kind of, let's say, above you in the chain of command right, um, yeah, because yeah. they're publishing your book, um, try to influence what you write is uh, is refreshing and actually gives me gives me some hope. Yeah, I like the I like what you said about well, one I like that you introduced because uh, in some of the other books, uh, like the one where you're talking about, um, you know, uh, uh, quantum computing, you, you talk about some of the dangers of that, and what might happen, and and things like that. So it's only the preface prefaces are uh, used in a lot of different ways in novels like that. But I really enjoy the way you use yours. Um, back to the what you were saying about, um, I guess the least you can do. And in, in, as a citizen, uh, to be informed, you know what I mean? And, and then, you know, take some pretty basic steps, especially at the local level. We talk a lot about uh, our failed and untrustworthy institutions and then about propaganda. I mean, we're seeing a lot of it right now from over the last 18 months, especially. It's been fucking wild. And now there's more of it coming. Um, the only way you can really insulate yourself from any of that stuff is to be informed and prepared. Right. I mean, you, you, you're, you, you only have to be a little bit more informed than the propaganda itself to be like, nope, that's bullshit. You know what I mean? It, it's not, it's it's, it's not that much effort to be honest, to do that stuff. And <clears throat> you can remain politely skeptical about things as well. There's no, like may, maybe there's some price to pay for that because people are trying to, you know, coerce or force you into a certain position or, or to even take a position where you're not ready to, but you know, Polite skepticism is always a very useful tool in your tool belt. Um, and then, you know, the next thing you got into about how this is all for the next generation. You're cut, every, every step you take in your life, you're cutting a path, right? And the path is going to be taken by the people that follow after you as well, not just your kids and your family, but other people. Um, and that's kind of the way... I want to get your thoughts on this because it's kind of the way life used to be. A man would 
turn 18, figure out a career, find a wife, have some kids. And then the purpose of your life became to, you know, provide and protect, but, but downstream it became, I'm going to give my kids a better life than what I had right now. We had pretty good lives. Our mine and your generation, we had pretty good lives. And what I don't know that we knew what it meant to give our kids a better life than what we had. You know what I mean? Like we, a lot of us were latch keys. So maybe more time at home would have been the, the answer, right? More time actually spent with your family. Maybe. But, I think about that a lot. Yeah. It's like, but I, for a lot of people, um, I don't know that I could give my, when, when I have kids, I don't know if I'm going to be able to give them a better life than what I had. Cause mine, I mean, I, my, my younger years are pretty rough, but my adult years have been pretty fucking dope. You know what I mean? It's, it's been great. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure we spent the requisite amount of time fleshing out what it means to give people a better life because better doesn't mean more. I think, I think we've made that mistake. I think we made the mistake of thinking better means more. And now we're in a fucking particular bind because of it. Yeah, no, I agree uh, completely. And uh, I think better might just mean opportunity, but not just opportunity. Uh, I think it means also appreciating that opportunity and realizing what was sacrificed so that you can have that opportunity or those opportunities. And you said something interesting about uh, staying uh, skeptical, uh, polite skepticism. And uh, yeah, I think there's a difference between being skeptical and cynical. So uh, a little bit of skepticism, very healthy, I think. Um, so there's a difference between those two things. Uh, so remaining semi-skeptical, politely skeptical will serve you well, I believe. But also going back in the pages of history. So in order to give current events context, it's not just about studying and being informed on what's happening now. I think it's about going back into the pages of history so that you have a foundation from which to understand the present. Um, and I think that gets lost a lot, especially now with so many distractions mm. out there, so many competing distractions out there. Um, we're seeing it with our with our kids. I note it myself um, being involved on on social media to engage with people and thank them for uh, following along, listening to the podcast, watching the show on TV, reading the books. Uh, there are just so many distractions out there that keep you from opening that book on history, which will give you a better foundation from which to make decisions going forward and understanding the current climate, a current issue. But really going back into those pages on a certain issue is the first step because that's really where you can establish an understanding of why. And in this case, why we have the freedoms that we do, how fortunate we are that we have these freedoms, even though they're being encroached upon, and even though they might mm. not be what they were 50 years ago, um, we are st we, we still have them and we can still fight for them. Mm. Um, but understanding where they came from and why we have them, and also understanding that these things are natural rights. If you got dropped here out of nowhere and had no context uh, about where you were, what you were doing, and you're attacked by, let's say, eight people, you know enough to defend that gift of life. Mm. That means. That's a natural thing, uh, and that's within each and every one of us. It may be suppressed in a lot of people, particularly in New York and Los Angeles. Well, come on, that's, that wasn't very nice, uh, <laughs> but um, it's true. you know it's true. Uh, it might be suppressed in in a lot of us because of a lot of outside influences, perhaps, but it's still there. And protecting that gift of life, which naturally then translates on as uh, as a citizen 
and as a husband and father protecting your spouse and your children uh that's a very natural mm -hmm. thing and we're very lucky to have that enshrined in founding documents that still need to be fought for yeah i don't know if you've uh, uh certainly you know history is uh man we just don't know it anymore and it's so important to um there, there's a an author tim Wu. i don't know if you're familiar with him but he wrote this book mm -hmm. called the attention Merchants. Um, and he details how, um, the early political campaigns in the late 19th and early 20th century that, that were, that used media, print media, or that, and then the radio later on, um, all the strategy that they used for their marketing, for their campaign marketing was taken from middle and late 19th century snake oil salesmen. They used the same kind of like, they focused on <laughs> uh, on buzzwords and things like that. They focused on giving people nicknames, like your opponent nicknames that are kind of negative, just to reinforce constantly that negativity in their head associated with that guy. He does a really good job of laying out how the, the pathway from the snake oil salesman and then early 20th century politicians used it in their campaign marketing and then later in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, Mad Men, Madison Avenue, used it for, it became modern American advertising, right? So this stuff, we like to think of propaganda and fake news and blah, 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 all that shit. Like it's some kind of new thing. It's like, no, this shit's always been going on. It's just a matter of what kind of modality is being used to communicate the fucking bullshit. But propaganda is not new. Uh, it's a really interesting that, book. That's and then he wrote a yeah, follow-up it book. It's called The Attention Merchants. Um, and then he wrote, a, yeah, he wrote a follow-up book. Uh, 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 hold on, let me see. Let me get the name right. Make sure I don't fuck it up. Um, I'm ordering that as soon as we're off the podcast. Yeah, yeah here. it's it's and, really uh, good. It's really good. You'll probably. I, I, I can't say that I'm shocked. <laughs> no, no, no. Definitely uh, not shocked. No, I'm sorry. Let's see. Where is it? Da, 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 da. Um. Oh no, I'm sorry. This was that was the follow-up book. The first book that he wrote on this was called the master switch. And it's how, uh, um, it's how information tech over the years, whether it be, uh, uh, writing and distribution or then the printing press and then radio, then TV and so on. Then the internet has always been weaponized by governments, basically yeah. like anything that's made for any kind of communicative, uh, modality, they just snatch it up and try to weaponize it immediately. So a couple of really good books, the yeah. attention merchants, especially though, is it's like, if you read that book, you can see exactly how people are being programmed now to think a certain way. And that's why, you know, to your point from before, we are so we were, we're we may be more susceptible to propaganda now than ever, which is interesting, right? Because we've got more information now as well. Mm -hmm. You have you as a human being have the ability to inform yourself better than you ever have before. And yet we're still more susceptible now to propaganda than we ever have been. Yeah, these things are these platforms are tools, just like mm. just like a hammer, just like anything else. You can uh, you, you can use it uh, for good, for evil, mm. uh, for different purposes, nefarious and otherwise. There's a lot of good to it as well. But uh, like what we're doing right now, obviously, wouldn't be able to do it without uh, without these platforms. Yeah. But uh, going back to what you said earlier about latch being a latchkey kid, like I look back on that fondly. I was a, mm. I was a latchkey kid as well. Coming home, actually, you know, finding where that that key was. Mm -hmm. I have a great memory of where it was on a nail and reaching behind and grabbing it, letting myself in all alone at age seven, six, maybe for sure, seven, eight, nine, ten. Um, and guess what? There wasn't 
well, there wasn't this device that I had that was trying to manipulate me. Um, I had whatever magazines my parents had lying around, uh, whatever books my parents had there at the house. Uh, I had a very fortunate to have a house in a backyard where I could climb trees and put up ropes and uh, a little tree fort that I could do pull-ups on as I got, as I got older and uh, not even that old watching Rocky very early in life. Um, started those pull-ups very early on. So it, I have very fond memories of that but there wasn't much that was manipulating you from the outside right and that's obviously very different today so it's a it's a tough thing I, my wife and i talk about it all the time and as it pertains to our to our kids particularly our youngest mm -hmm. uh, our, our oldest just skirted it um she's 18 and so she uh she just kind of missed like it was there but for some reason she was on the outside of that bubble like she had some things she was aware of it but she was also aware of what it was trying to do Man, our our thirteen year old, he is in it. Mm. He is in it. It's a it's a tough thing as a parent to try to figure out. Yeah, I mean, how do you how do you handle that? Because it's kind of a fucking tornado, to be honest. Like it's like how I, you don't want them to be a luddite. You know, I want my kids to be able to understand tech and be able to leverage it. You know, to do good things in the world and and better themselves. But it seems like around every corner, you know what I mean. It's it's around every corner is a windowless van with free candy written on the side of it. And they're serving up either some kind of abuse or some kind of stupid ideology. You know what I mean? Like how, how do you police yep. that? I don't know if you even can. Yeah. When we have the, the, the technical means to control it and watch what's going on and that sort of thing, set time limits and, and all, all that sort of a thing. But that's the way these, they communicate with, with friends. Uh, so it's a, it, it, it's extremely difficult, but we put in place what we can. We try to talk about it. Of course, he's sick of hearing it, um, but uh, the day changers just to make him aware of what's going on, make aware that anything that he does or any outside influence is, is manipulating um, and just to be aware of that going in. But if it's not the phone, guess what? On that Xbox or whatever else is oh, going yeah. on, uh, that's it connected and there's influences coming through that. It's extremely difficult. So just like any parent, I think we're just trying to do the best we can. Mm. Yeah, I like the the one phrase from uh, the coddling of the American mind that I really appreciated was "Don't prepare the road for your children; prepare your children for the road." Like you can't, nice. You, you can't, you can't, you can't change the environment. You know what I mean? I mean, to some degree, you can, but uh, we, I, as much as we missed out on some human to human contact during that last key process, I think the independence that we generated from it was probably worth it. To be honest, I mean, um, I feel like. The kids I hear about these days, the ones that, um, you know, the, the ones that you hear about, I guess, are just, it, it seem, they seem hopeless. You know what I mean? They just have no life skills at all. You know, it, it's, 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 very, it's very troubling to me. It's like, what, that, that's, that is one of our primary jobs is like maybe jobs 1A and 1B are to create a good, sustainable world you know, for ourselves in the future and then prepare our children for the future. Those seem to be two of the more important things going on. Um, and we, yeah. it, it seems like we don't prioritize those things at all anymore. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, I remember coming home and I had a, a, a pellet gun. And so I'd have, I'd set up an obstacle course and, and I uh, had the pellet gun, but first I'd run sprints on the hill, come mm. down shoot that, that gun, drop it, run to a, a uh, rope hanging off a tree, climb that a couple times, drop down, climb up onto the roof, send a few arrows down into a hay bale. Um, and so it, it run to the chimney. I put a rope around the chimney and set up a rappel thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's some rappelling off our, no one around. Like if I'd gone down, no one was going to be there till yeah. that was, let's say, at three o'clock. 
no one was going to be there until like 6 30 yeah, yeah. and they were just buying heap at the bottom of the chimney uh, on the outside of the house so but uh but that was interesting i mean there was there was risk involved uh and you had to be creative um and you're trying to better yourself so it was uh, and it was preparing for the future so i uh you know and when i got tired of that guess what was inside a book um, <laughs> yeah. so i i i really look back fondly on on those times that I was left alone to, to my own devices to figure things out. Yeah. I had something similar in my backyard. So we had a, a, a rope, thick climbing rope tied from between two trees that we would, you know, skirt along. And then we had um, a big, a, a climbing rope hanging out of a tree house we built. Now looking back on it, I was like, when at the time I was like, man, that's like 30, 40 feet up there. And I, when I <laughs> think about it now, I'm like, that's like 15 feet maybe. Right. Uh, it's not that tall, but I yeah, those were those are good times just playing army in the backyard. Um, exactly, with, with a lot no, to that and no imagination side of it. You know, yeah, there's a lot to, especially you know, there, there's a lot to learning how to entertain yourself in a productive mm -hmm. way, but also just having time to to daydream. Um, and I think there's a lot, especially as a as a writer, um, being able to quietly daydream and think things through and think up scenarios and think how you'd solve problems just made up problems i think is uh is valuable and you had to do that because there wasn't this constant input of uh from the outside there wasn't constant entertainment um and that's lost a lot today unless you force it yeah. on your on your kid uh in which case they're probably just jonesing for that phone again mm -hmm. they're just thinking about getting back but uh but having to solve problems like that creatively aggressively sometimes um that are just made up in your head i think is extremely valuable particularly probably in life but especially as as a writer um but you don't if you have constant input from the outside you're not doing that right um as a kid days so um, yeah, man, it's tough, but I like to, I like to try, I try to stay hopeful. Somebody was, was telling me not too long last year, um, uh, let's say eight months ago, he said, uh, you, you have to stay positive because otherwise you can't manifest that future for your kids, for the next generation. So I, I thought a lot about that since he told me that and it was on a podcast actually. Yeah. And, uh, and I was like, that's it. That's interesting. So staying positive to manifest that future for your kids, um, is something he passed on and I thought was was uh was valuable well yeah i mean it's you, you can again back to the point of the show you can bitch and moan about how things are you can do something you know what i mean um and uh, you know i think yeah there's there's good data now to show that um our memories and our level of creativity are getting worse because we're not using them anymore not just our not just how our memory like we're, we're we're selectively breeding our own brains at this point you know what i mean we're selectively breeding neurons to expect immediate satisfaction of whatever it can right so we're we're weaning ourselves off serotonin and on to dopamine which is not the best right i mean it's like it's the cheap thrill versus the lasting happiness you know what i mean we're sacrificing that and there's no wonder like there's a lot of reasons uh including hormone levels and that have been fucked with and stuff and a general malaise to explain a lot of the suicide numbers that are going on. And I don't mean veteran. I just mean in the general population, it's up as well. Even for teenage girls, which used to be one of the more resilient against suicide, right? Um, all of these things are on the rise right now. And it's no wonder, right? Because we're, we, we're, we're changing the relationship between effort and outcome, I guess. You know what I mean? It's like I, the expectation that things will be good regardless and then things are not good. It, it reminds me of that 
it reminds me of that veteran whose life is more or less going pretty well and they can't figure out why they're fucking depressed and want to kill themselves all the time. It, the, the two don't match up. If things suck and you feel bad about it, that makes sense to your brain. If things are going pretty well and you fucking hate your life, then, you know, it, it's like, what do you do then? Mm. You know what I mean? It's like, damn, everything's good. And I still feel like this. There's no hope anymore. You know what I mean? And we're creating a fucking hopeless society at this point. Oh, I thought we we're going to stay positive. Yeah, I know that. Well, I mean, you, gotta, you have to identify you have to, the problem before we can treat it, right? Yep. No, exactly right. So there's something exactly about right. like putting that device down uh, and, you know what, I'm going to read the book this time or I'm going to listen to it on Audible instead of going to watch the movie or whatever the fuck, right? Not that people shouldn't watch your TV show. They should. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like take the, take the stairs. That, that's a model of mine. It's like, you know, sometimes it's not convenient, whatever. You know, and it's not like I'm not trying to moralize the issue or anything. All I'm trying to do is remind people that human human beings have done things a particular way for the last, I don't know, quarter of a million years, um, mm -hmm. give or take. And you're not going to outsmart nature. You know what I mean? If you try to rapidly change things like that, there's going to be a price to pay for it. So it is, mm -hmm. it is within your power to look at the easy way and look at the difficult way and take the difficult way. That is a choice that you personally are in control of. That's the beauty of this is that nobody can fucking stop you. You just, all you have to do is be disciplined and make that decision and your life will re improve markedly, not only your life, but the lives around you as well, because nothing teaches more than setting a good example. You know, thinking about those distractions, um, I remember reading an article back in the mid eighties and it was probably in time or Newsweek Cause that's what, uh, those are the news magazines that came to our house, but it was when Miami vice came out and I distinctly remember this, uh, just being even then just a fan of, of popular culture, all those shows in, in the eighties and movies and everything else. Um, and the article pointed out that if you looked at Miami vice and then you looked back at say gun smoke or something like that, the camera and how long the camera was on a certain mm -hmm. actor, a certain scene, was so different and they were worried about the attention particularly of the youth watching miami vice and having not being able to pay attention for much longer anymore because of those camera takes that were so different from 20 30 years prior uh so it's it's similar different mm -hmm. obviously uh <laughs> it seemed alarmist back then and of course we think that uh right now that uh, it's a lot worse which i can't see how you can say that it's not mm. as far as uh attention attention grabbing uh platforms and and devices and and all the rest of it but uh but that was a, a worry back then um and uh, it's still a it's still a worry today of course yeah. there's a lot more of it i've actually I, I, we had a discussion about there was an article about this recently actually i don't know where it was mm -hmm. now but we talked about it on the show maybe maybe a month ago on drinker bros we we're talking about it but uh, cause Ross was a, you know, a director for a long time is like the, the, the establishing shot was quite a bit longer or the end of a scene. Like if you look at, you know, film and television from the 1950s, for example, there would be the end of the scene, the dialogue would be complete. And then there would be like a 15 second lead out from that. You know what I mean? With some, maybe some music or something just to like give, well, I don't know what the purpose was, but the, the, what the purpose seemed like was to give me a chance to, I don't know, absorb everything that just happened. You know what I mean? And now it's, now it's just like yeah. cut, 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 right? As soon, as quickly as possible. They don't want to lose your attention. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, but, you know, who, what, maybe it's a chicken or egg thing. Maybe our attention's getting shorter, so they have to do that, or maybe it, maybe it feeds each other. I don't know. Um, but it yeah. is. Yeah, it's, it's again, interesting, you know. 
Yeah, go ahead. No, it's interesting though, no doubt about oh, it. Oh, it is. Yeah, and I, then, I uh, like looking at stuff like that. Just because even yeah, even no, if it is even if it is a negative change, you can still it's still within the parameters of workability. You know what I mean? Like you can still adjust for things. That that's why I like like it it sounds like doom and gloom a lot when you're talking about stuff like this, but really it's just information. Yeah. Like, oh, how how am I going to adjust yeah. now? Like, hey, it's a shitty day out. You got to take a sniper shot. It's like, all right, well, I just got to plug that dope in. That's just the way it is, man. There's no there's no change yeah, in reality. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Hold left. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, you know, going back to something you were talking about earlier about uh, uh, a citizen, the responsibility mm -hmm. of citizens. Most of history, you had to prove yourself to your tribe and to your mm -hmm. society in order to gain membership and be accepted by that tribe and by that society. Meaning that you had to go through usually a series of tests, which I think is still, you know, I think it's a very natural thing, which is why so many people are drawn to Marine Corps boot camp or, uh, or any boot camp really, or now that people know about BUDS or Q course or whatever it is, uh, there's still this draw in our DNA to test ourselves and prove ourselves. It just happened to be mandatory mm -hmm. uh, for most human history um you had to prove your value to that tribe because back then it wasn't just about a quote-unquote good life or a bad life or whatever else no it was about survival yeah. of your lineage survival of that tribe survival of that society um so you had to prove yourself and that was just a part of it so we've lost that today i think it's still in there in a lot of us and it's just a new even whether you recognize it or not um and it and, and you can see it in the hero's journey mm -hmm. in in movies television shows and and books there's this draw to something that's primal there's like, just like there's a draw to a campfire just like there's a draw to telling a story around a campfire why is that because you're passing on lessons from the hunt and from battle to future generations so that they don't have to relearn those same lessons in blood they can make that a part of their experience and they can adapt going forward so that's still in us it's just been tamped down uh, I'd say over, over the millennia. Yeah. I mean, we don't have the physiological part. We've got the psychological part is still going on, but the physiological part, that is to say the practical exercise of it seems to be gone. Now we don't have rites of passage that are intrinsic to society in the West anymore, except for, I guess, Jews do right with the bar mitzvah. That's when you know you're, but how do, how does like an Irish kid in the suburbs know that they've become an adult? You know what I mean? Right. It's different because it used to be like, you know, at 12 or whatever, you would go hunt, kill something with your dad and uh, take a bite out of the heart. And it's like, all right, I'm, I'm a man now or whatever. Or you, you know, is it just getting your fucking driver's license now? Because that seems like a pretty low bar. And, you know, that's why that's why custom and culture matters. It isn't about excluding people. You know what I mean? It's about taking what's good about what you've learned so far, like you're saying, and uh, making that into an organized thought process. You know what I mean? Like, OK. We know that these things are important for people to feel a sense of belonging. And then it also has the added benefit of, you know, uh, promoting our society and, and, and progressing it farther down the road. It's like, all right, cool. We know all these things and we're just going to give up on them, I guess now. Right. Because I, I don't know why, like, it, it seems like it, it seems like they've all disappeared, but I can't put my finger on why we would have done that. Like why, why get rid of those rites of passage? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, or we get distracted elsewhere. Society moves in a different direction. Uh, I mean, there's so many, so many factors, but it comes back to taking these lessons and applying them going forward as wisdom. Whether we're doing that personally with mm -hmm. our families or at the national strategic type of a level, uh, we're not that good at it. 
We used to have to be good at it. Now you don't have to be that good at it because what happens? Uh, look at what happened in Afghanistan. Look at what happened in Iraq. Uh, guess what? Here in the United States, we keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're, we're still moving forward. It didn't, it impacted a generation, yes, uh, of those who went downrange in their families. Um, but the greater populace, not so much. They watched it on news and they then moved on. Uh, they watched the disastrous withdrawal on television, were outraged for a little bit, and then we got distracted by another news cycle. Uh, we got manipulated into watching other things, being concerned about other things. Um, so will we take those lessons from Afghanistan, let's say in particular, and apply those lessons going forward as wisdom? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. We've proven not to be very good at that. Yeah. We've, we've also done what I think is some pretty remarkable and difficult to repair damage to our institutions and the trust in them. I mean, everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're in the, what, what the DOD is calling a recruiting crisis. I don't think it's a recruiting crisis. I think it's a crisis of conscious people. Like, it, it's, you know, it, it's doing war is a difficult thing. You know what I mean? No, no matter how you know, selfless and patriotic you are, it is still a difficult thing, not just for you, but for your entire family. And there's a fucking price to pay for that shit, a big price to pay for it. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it is the validation of our honor and sacrifice that I think that keeps most people going. People don't join the infantry or, or, you know, uh, uh, soft because of a college tuition or bonuses you know what i mean that that would be that would be an insane reason to do any of those things to be honest um it is you know it's it's as you said before it's like i think a big part of it is proving yourself to society but you you have to feel like society is worth proving yourself to to do that you know what i mean um and i wonder from your perspective i mean you lifelong service um you continue to serve now and through charitable ways and, and through, you know, being a good representation of what a fucking warrior is. I think those are all really important. But what do you tell your kids? What, what would you tell your kid if, if she's 18 now, she wants to go join the military? What do you say? Because I, I frankly, I would never let my kid join the military right now. Yeah, it's I mean, it, it's tough. Um, and for her in particular, of all our kids, she'd be the one that would that would be on that path. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it was because of, you know, she grew up around, I mean, she's learning jujitsu from, from seals and from uh, top class jujitsu players. And she's uh, going to, uh, to, out to the desert to shoot with Navy seal snipers as a, at age seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. So she was around all that growing, growing up. But even so, I don't think that really, because it was so natural, I don't think it really cemented, Hey, this is something I need to do. It was just something that, that was, and there's other opportunities out there, but we went to Pearl Harbor um, and we went there uh, for the anniversary commemoration events and we took veterans over there with the Best Defense Foundation. So mm. she's sitting at tables with these guys who are 96, 97, 98, 99, 100, 101 years old, hearing stories about them in World War II. And that's different than me telling her about her grandfather right. or about her watching a movie or reading a book. Uh, she's hearing it from this person who 
tells her how he walked out. He's passed away since, and this is only uh, you know two years, two and a half, or two years ago. Um, he walks out onto the the runway, Ford Island. He watches these planes bank over these mountains, drop down, and strafe the runway. And those are the first shots at Pearl Harbor. And he dives into what was then a sewage ditch, shows us that ditch. It's just dry now says he gets up he walks us he shows us the because they left the 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 marks in the tarmac and in the hangars from the bullets back then walks says he got up ran to the edge of the shore and looks down at battlefield uh, battleship row watches these planes bank these and drop down and drop the first torpedoes in in pearl harbor and he was a mechanic then went on to become a pilot he sunk a japanese submarine in the pacific helped sink a japanese aircraft carrier and then went to the med and sunk a nazi submarine so she's hearing all that mm. from him and that's just one but then we went to, to normandy and she's on the beach at normandy with a guy who's first out of his landing craft uh and hearing the story about he's sitting in a jeep on the beach she's standing next to him i'm taking pictures trying not to to interrupt mm. and he's telling her the story of him running across the beach at normandy so i think those things would inspire her to join the military because of the story she just got to hear from yeah, that yeah. generation. Yeah. So if anything, I think it's, it's that for her, but what I encourage, I don't think I would encourage or discourage. Um, it's just, it's a path I'll inform best I can. I'll support the best I can, but, um, the decisions will obviously be the kids. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it kind of, the, the, the relationship between the warrior and the risk involved i always think of um the old spartan phrase uh kalos thanatos which means a beautiful death right like if you're in an impossible combat situation you're looking for you know uh a, a heroic confrontation worthy of the crown of life i think is the phrase they used to use something like that it's like and it also reminds me of something one of my my first, uh, well, actually my second commander in the 82nd used to say, um, because we would go out on operations and stuff, and, you know, we're all knuckleheads throwing rocks at each other like idiots. Uh, it's like, oh, we should name this operation fucking Dum Dum or whatever. It's like, you, you should never name an operation anything that you wouldn't want to show up on your fucking epitaph. You know what I mean? Like, don't, don't be disrespectful to people who might fucking lose their lives in this. And that, that always stuck with me. And I think it drove home yeah. the point that I already kind of knew internally, but I never really articulated to myself that um, a big part of all of this is that the person doing the sacrifice has to know that the sacrifice is worthy, right? That it's that it's noble. And uh, we just don't have that feeling anymore. We've been lied to too often. And our, our patriotism and our selflessness has been leveraged against us too often. And I, I don't, you know, in a, in a, confrontation like this somebody's got to be the diplomat somebody has to make the move to be the bigger person and i frankly as much as i want to hate and distrust all the institutions part of me thinks that you know it's going to be on people like us who have that service mentality to repair this stuff and certainly we're not going to wait around for the government to fix anything because they never do yeah, uh, they have a uh, don't have the greatest track record there. And speaking of track records, let's say you're yeah, you're a father um, and you have a, a son or daughter who wants to join the military. Uh, they're a senior in high school, and you just watched the withdrawal from Afghanistan, mm -hmm. and you're thinking, and you have no military experience. Let's say you've never read a book on strategy or tactics. Never even let's you don't even have to watch the military film. Uh, no touch points with the military, but you can apply common sense 
to that and what you saw and asked that question, this is this the best that our, the United States military could do with 20 years to prepare for it? And this is the best they could do. And I'm watching this right now. Maybe I'm not going to encourage my son or daughter to join the military if they're going to serve under people whose best efforts just played out in real time. And they had 20 years, not just to prepare, but of lessons that they could apply towards this situation. And this is the best that they could do. And then you look and find, oh, wait a sec, there's been no accountability. So those same people are going to be in charge or the people behind them mm. are going to look up and see that there was no accountability and continue along the same paths, meaning not speaking truth to power because of what it's going to do to your quote unquote career. Um, no one took the stars off their shoulders, dropped them on a desk and walked out. Yeah. Um, and they had very there. I think I, I heard someone asked about that and they said, well, they could do more being in there. Like, it would have been worse with it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and now they're probably serving on the board of, you know, whatever company oh, yeah. put it, yeah. but defense it's company X in there, uh, whatever it might be. So yeah, if you're applying common sense to these things as a, as a citizen and you know, the importance of military service, you know, the importance of testing yourselves, uh, but you saw that happen. Are you going to encourage your son or daughter uh, into that institution? Don't think so. It seems unlikely. Yeah, luckily there's a lot of ways to serve, uh, and it isn't always the military. I mean, you can. Uh, what I what I recommend to people when they because a lot of people ask me about this because they have kids or they're they are young people, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen years old. They want to serve their country somehow. I'm like, I personally I wouldn't join, but you know, if you want to do it, make smart decisions. But you can go become a sheriff as well. Sheriff's deputy. That's the, the your boss is an is a, an elected person. You know what I mean. And sheriffs in America are one of the last lines of defense against tyranny, in my opinion. Um, so, like, there's and there's EMTs. There's all kinds of ways to serve a country. It doesn't just have to be the military. Um, now, <clears throat> you have before we get we got to get out of here. But before we get out of here, you've got some uh, some more work coming. I know there's strikes going on for the uh, production side of stuff, but. Uh, you're getting back to writing and whatnot, and then you've got a couple of books you're working on as well. You want to tell me about those? Yep, working on James Reese 7 that comes out this this May. And then my first nonfiction work that I'm uh, working on with uh, amazing guys, a Pulitzer Prize finalist, uh, military historian, James Scott. He has uh, five mm. books out there, most on World War II. Oh, yeah. um, and we're doing a book on the 1983 Beirut barracks bombing, uh, 40th anniversary of which is coming up here on uh, October 23rd. Uh, so the book will be out next fall, but there's a lot of declassified documents from the Reagan administration that uh, allow you to go in, do the research and find out what was going on behind the scenes mm. that led up to that attack, who was advocating to put Marines ashore, who's advocating to keep them on ships in the Med. Um, uh, of course, the embassy bombing in April of 83, which then led into to October. Yeah. And uh, really the opening shots of what we'd later come to call the war on terror. So uh, so that's in there. And then the scripts for the uh, the Ben Edwards origin story starring mm -hmm. Taylor Kitsch. And that's, those are good. Like We got five of them in before the strike, the writer strike. Now that the writer strike's over, we're back on those. They are solid scripts. I'm super fired up about that. And then that'll roll right into True Believer, which is the second book starring Chris Pratt. And uh, then we'll just keep going from there. So it's, uh, it's, it's super fun. I, like I said, I'm a student. I'm really enjoying the screenwriting process. It's much more collaborative, obviously. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's interesting learning, learning something new every day. So a lot on the plate and, uh, I thoroughly and thoroughly enjoy all of it though. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's great. I'm glad uh, everybody's getting back to work a little bit now. And I'm really curious. I'm uh, looking forward to this this uh, book on Beirut. I mean, I'm not sure that the average American, even after all the dust up when we when, when we clipped them a couple of years ago, know about how much of a role Soleimani played in a lot of the shit that happened to the United States over the last like 40 years or so, right? Um, so good, oh, yeah, good thing uh, he's fucking it, dead. It's, it's yeah, it's super interesting, um, especially those early days when mm. we didn't really guys coming out of, of Vietnam. So people had Vietnam experience. Mm. They had counterinsurgency experience in Vietnam. A lot of those guys rolled into government agencies in the 80s and are now dealing with this new threat that really first appeared in uh, in Europe and the Middle East and then came to uh, to our shores. Um, but it's uh, it's very interesting to go back and look at those origins and try to extrapolate some of those lessons mm. and which ones that we did apply and which ones that we didn't. Um, so what my goal is to keep those lessons alive for future generations, for people who don't know about mm. that event uh, or people who've forgotten about it or seem to remember it on a headline somewhere when they were younger, but don't really understand what it, what it meant, who was involved and how that plays into what's going on in the Middle East today. So there, there's lessons there that, uh, that I want to keep alive. Once again, responsibility of a citizen, keep those lessons alive for future generations. So that's really the goal of the Beirut book. Good, man. Well, I appreciate you doing it and uh, appreciate you coming today. Everybody go check out Jack Carr. Check out all the books. This is, is this six or seven? This is seven for Reese, right? Seven's coming up. And yep, he, seven this May. And he's a full, full-blown full uh, ground branch guy at this point in his in his life, which is nice, right? He's back on the good side, Yeah, I guess. we got some uh, – he's on the edge. He's on the edge. They well, keep trying to pull him in, and he keeps going away. So this one is really about – each of my books has a theme. Yeah. And I start with a theme. It keeps me on track. Start with a title so I'm not wasting bandwidth trying to think about a title. I do a one-page executive summary that I read and ask myself, is this worth the next year, year and a half of mm -hmm. my life? And if someone were to read this on the back of a book as they walk through the airport, is this worth time that they're never going to get yeah. get back? And if the answer is both those is yes, then I I dive right in. So the seventh book really explores loyalty and then the, the future of AI, a, a fight over AI supremacy uh, and what that looks like. Well, I can't wait, man. I've I've read them all already. I'll I you know I make a habit to whenever a new book, in a series that I really like. So I uh, uh, the Nowhere Man by Hurwitz is one of my favorite series as well. And every time a he's new great. One, yeah, yeah, I love that dude. Every time a new one comes out, he's a big fan of yours, obviously as well. Uh, every time a new one comes out, I go back and listen to all of the books, and then the new one when it comes out because he always sends me the the audio version early. Uh, and I do the same for nice. yours. Every time a new one of yours comes out, uh, I do the same thing. So it's really great. I'm looking forward to it. Um, but look, thanks for coming today, man. I appreciate your insight and all the work you do. Oh, man, no, thank you for doing what you do. You guys are out there essentially on the front lines of this uh, this culture war. So um, you're doing it, it. It means a lot to, to, to all of us. So sincerely appreciate it. Thanks. Brother. I appreciate that. And everybody go check out Danger Close. Uh, a lot of great interviews over there as well. Check out uh, Jack Carr and all of his stuff. Thank you all for listening. This has been City. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.